Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It's James Rudd here. Today, I'm delighted to be chatting to Dr. Dinesh Kalra from the University of Louisville in Kentucky, USA. He and his colleagues have written a superb education in heart piece, which is all about atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk prediction, current state of the art. I'll make the piece open access if it's not already. And we have a good discussion about the various different scoring systems that are in use across the world, advantages and disadvantages, where the field is heading in the next five to 10 years, the impact of machine learning. And I hope you enjoy the show. So thanks so much for joining me today, uh, Dr. Kalra. Maybe we can start off by having you introduce yourself for the podcast audience. Who are you? Where do you work? And what do you do there? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Dr. Rudd, and uh, especially to talk on this topic. So I am uh, Dinesh Kalra. I'm the Chief of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Louisville, and I'm a professor of medicine and radiology. Uh, and my interests are in atherosclerosis, especially prediction of coronary disease, as well as plaque regression. So it's really timely that we're talking about this topic today, given all of the interest in this area. Absolutely. And you've written a very comprehensive education in heart piece, which is called Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Risk Prediction, Current State of the Art. And um, I wanted to start off by asking you what prompted this education in heart piece uh, and why is it important to write about this now? Have there been any recent updates in this field? What's going on in this field that makes it exciting? Absolutely. Uh, as you know, um, in Europe now, there's new guidelines about risk prediction and a new score that has come out called SCORE2. Uh, and in the United States, too, there's been a lot of interest in modifying and upgrading our scores on this side of the pond called pooled core risk equations. And in fact, uh, after our article got published, there's a new score being developed by the American Heart Association called PREVENT. So this remains an active area of pro progress and investigation. And given that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of uh, people across the world, we thought it was timely to have an educational piece informing clinicians as to how to best assess that risk and start prevention measures early on. And just before we dive too deeply into the topic, some of the listeners to the podcast will definitely be familiar with risk prediction tools, but maybe you can give us an overview for those that are not. What's the sort of idea behind these tools? What problems do they help us to solve? Yeah, certainly. Um, I'm sure most of the listeners are aware of earlier tools such as the Framingham Risk Calculator that tracked the Framingham population on the eastern coast of the United States. And going back to the 1950s and 60s, we realized certain risk factors were strongly predictive for coronary artery disease. And these included things such as high cholesterol, hypertension, smoking, et cetera. And over the past two or three decades, what has happened is an attempt to formalize the relative importance of these risk factors in predicting ASCVD or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease for populations in general. And the approach that has been applied is taking a test population and figuring out which risk factors are important in that prediction 
and then using statistical tools for validation and discrimination to come up with the best set of equations or calculators that allow clinicians to give their patients a 10-year risk or even a lifetime risk for developing cardiovascular disease. So in this article, we talk about that historical progression of tools or various tools across the world. In the United States, as you mentioned, we use the pooled cohort risk equations. In Britain, they use something called Q-Risk-3. And in Europe, uh, there is now the SCORE-2. And there's various tools in different parts of the world. There's the China PAR for the Chinese population. Uh, there's CORE for the Italians, ProCam and other parts of Europe, et cetera. But the essence of all of these tools is to, again, take in all of these risk factors and apply their discriminatory strategy in that particular population being studied and then validate it in a prospective cohort to come up with the best equation that fits that model in that continent or country. And then I guess the obvious question is, why is it important to do that? And you nicely outline in your paper the different reasons for uh, different sort of cutoffs for statin prescription across different areas of the world, but it gives you a sort of baseline of high, medium, and low risk of future cardiovascular disease. And you mentioned there that different tools do exist in different areas of the world. Why is that the case? I mean, they're beautifully illustrated on a map in figure one, but why do we need different scoring systems in different countries of the world? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and that has to do with different importance of risk factors. There's heterogeneous importance of risk factors in different parts of the world. Some of it is driven by genetics, but a lot of it is driven by lifestyle. And different factors become um, important in a different attributable sense in different portions of the world. For example, there are portions of the world where red meat consumption and smoking is more prevalent than in other parts of the world where fruits and vegetables or even physical exercise uh, uh, has more importance. And there are obvious differences in terms of uh, uh, levels of exposure to pollution, stress, and other factors that we're beginning to realize are important, such as even sleep patterns and patterns of alcohol intake. So all of those require tools that have been validated in particular populations. A tool that's valid in Britain may not be valid in the United States, even though if you think about it, ethnically, um, at least 40% uh, of the population arose from Northern European populations, but still there are wide differences based on the melting pot and ethnicity and other risk factors in every population. And are you able to outline some of the similarities and the differences between the tools that you describe in the review? Uh, as you say, you mostly focused on three, didn't you? The European Union, uh, Great Britain, and then the North American tools. But maybe you can outline some, some of the similarities and the differences between the major tools. Absolutely. So the good news is the five or six, six well-known, well-validated risk factors for coronary disease remain the same across these tools. For example, age is a very powerful predictor of when people develop atherosclerosis. So is hypertension, smoking, uh, cholesterol, and the cholesterol is taken in these tools in different forms. For example, the Q-risk, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the um, SCORE2 uh, tends to use non-HDL cholesterol and other parts of the world use a ratio of total cholesterol to HDL, et cetera. 
but these remain constant uh, across the different tools. What is different is um, more refined markers of risk. For example, in QRISC-3, which perhaps in incorporates the largest type of risk factors, uh, they have now incorporated diseases such as autoimmune diseases, which elevate the risk of atherosclerosis, such as lupus or HIV, or social deprivation scores. So some of those are not yet incorporated in the American version of the tools called the food risk uh, uh, equations, although they are mentioned as risk enhancers, not directly as risk factors. So there are nuances based on uh, whether or not the uh, on the number of variables that are included and what specific granularity is given to unusual variables such as the ones I mentioned. And when should medical practitioners apply these tools typically? Um, looking at your paper, there do seem to be some differences in recommendations of when the tools should be used. But again, maybe you could briefly summarize uh, when we should be using these tools. Yeah, broadly speaking, these are intended, as the name suggests, for primary prevention populations. So in general, starting in middle age, so the, based on the tool you're using, in general, it's 40 plus, uh, and then the upper limit of cutoff is anywhere from 70 to 80 years old. And so, for example, the score two older person's tool now allows you to get up to an age of 79, whereas the pooled cord equations typically stop at about age 70 or so. And that's because of the nature of the studies that were incorporated when deriving these equations. Um, for example, on, on, in the, on the American side, We've used studies such as, as I mentioned, the Framingham Risk Equation and the Framingham Risk uh, Study, uh, the Jackson Heart Study, the ERIC and MESA studies, et cetera. So what studies went into deriving that population and tool are important. Um, um, so the other thing to remember is that, unfortunately, uh, as we all know, atherosclerosis starts early. Uh, it typically starts in the teens and 20s. And these tools are being applied for people 40 plus, but that's, uh, uh, and we'll talk about disadvantages, that's just the way they, they were derived and the populations that are studied. So um, for clinicians who see these patients in the office, it's not enough to just say, my patient has hypertension or a very high LDL, and that's all I'm gonna take into account. The tools are meant to be more holistic and combine an approach of using different risk factors to come up with a score. So that's a good um, part about using a standardized tool. The bad part, as I mentioned, you miss out on patients who are young. And at, by the same token, you tend to overestimate risk in older people because age is a very powerful marker of risk uh, and disproportionately uh, informs higher risk in these older people. And you briefly mentioned some of the emerging risk factors that some scores have begun to include in their models. Can you talk a little bit about that and where you think things might be headed over the next five to 10 years? Absolutely. That's perhaps the most exciting area of research and investigation is the use of things that are already established, such as calcium artery uh, uh, scoring. Uh, and that in studies has been shown to have the highest net reclassification index or NRI as we call it. It improves the C statistic for discrimination. So using biomarkers 
is an exciting opportunity to, to look at who has a higher risk. So calcium outrage scoring can elevate risk in folks who otherwise don't have traditional risk factors. By the same token, it all can also de-risk. So if somebody has hypertension and hyperlipidemia but has a calcium score of zero, uh, the score, the risk uh, in that person will be low compared to another individual where you do not know the calcium score. So that's the beauty of having these sort of more granular risk markers. So aside from imaging of coronaries with CT in the form of calcium scoring, there's also imaging of peripheral vasculature with ultrasound. So the carotid uh, plaque extent is emerging as a marker. But more importantly, even the iliofemoral extent of plaque, the iliofemoral arterial circulation is indeed the one that develops plaque the soonest in someone destined to have atherosclerosis, even sooner than coronary artery calcification. And it's an easily accessible way of uh, imaging that arterial bed using ultrasound. So you'll see more and more of these tools being applied in the future once you have validation uh, the second thing that people are doing is using polygenic uh, risk scores, um, because as you can imagine, single nucleotide polymorphisms in the genetic code of an individual may not give you uh, a lot of increase in atherosclerosis risk, but in a combined fashion, they add small, minute quantities of increase in risk. So having a data set of tens of thousands of SNPs, as they're called, uh, that can tell you someone's in, at an increased risk has the benefit of then starting prevention when those individuals are very, very young. So you can actually make an, a difference in the initiation and progression of atherosclerosis when it matters the most. There's this concept that is emerging of risk factor load or the uh, uh, risk factor elevation times the number of years exposed rather than using just age as a simple uh, one unit metric for risk, we can look at the amount of risk factor exposure uh, times the number of years. So you'll see more of those kind of tools emerging. And then as we said, there are other yet unquantified uh, parameters that we're starting to look at, such as sleep and the amount of air pollution someone's exposed to or the amount of stress in someone's life or social determinants of health. Those are harder to capture at the moment, but large data and artificial intelligence is going to be really important in sort of incorporating those at a population-based level. And just to finish off, how do you um, see areas where we still need to, to do better? Where do the tools still fall down? For example, you mentioned certain eth ethnic minorities, different areas of the world where there's low and middle income regions, vulnerable populations. Where, where can we... Um, where can we improve the impact of these scores? Which populations deserve our attention? Precisely. You said it well. I mean, four out of five deaths, cardiovascular deaths in the world still occur prematurely in low and middle income countries. And um, unfortunately, that's where most of our data is lacking. We have data for, as we've said earlier, European populations, Northern American populations, certain other pockets of the world but we don't have data for uh, where most of these deaths are occurring. So we need more data from those portions of the world. The second thing is, you know, it's one thing to say that on a population basis, this risk calculator works, but ideally you'd wanna be able to tell the patient sitting in front of you in clinic, 
that this is your precise risk. Whether they're 20 years old or 85 years old, you want to give them a more refined estimate of risk. That's what that individual was interested in. And that's where I think things such as wearable devices and big data and further refining risk based on not just nationwide uh, uh, basis, but on a citywide basis or in the population you serve for your community clinic or hospital is going to become important. And that I think we'll get there in about five to 10 years. The field is making rapid progress. So I'm very excited about the potential of this tool. Fantastic. And it's been brilliant to chat to you, Dr. Kaura. You're clearly an expert in this area, and I will make the paper open access to everybody who's listening to the podcast if it isn't already. And just wanted to thank you once again for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.